Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Hello and welcome to the podcast table. Today we are joined by Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, who is the professor of Jewish history and culture at Israel Bible Center, along with being the very much appreciated host of the Roundtable Talks. And if you haven't taken advantage of those conversations with top experts in their fields, well, I highly recommend that you dive down the rabbit trail of fascinating conversations. This week, I am talking with Dr. Gruber about his new course called Kabbalah and the Bible. It is full of so much really fascinating information and so much great content that he actually has to split it into two courses. Part one is out now and part two is coming soon. Now, Kabbalah is not anything I personally have much knowledge or experience with. I've been to an ancient, very established city in Israel that is said to preserve Kabbalistic practices. And I've seen people in Jerusalem tying red strings made from thin scarlet wool thread around people's left wrist, which is said to ward off misfortune. When Dr. Gruber released this class, not just about Kabbalah, but also the Bible, well, I was interested. So let's start with the basics, shall we? What is Kabbalah? And what does the word itself mean? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, Kabbalah means reception or tradition, something like that. So the word itself is very general. And people often ask about the name Kabbalah or what is Kabbalah? Is it ancient or or later, as you were just saying uh, when we were talking earlier? I'm not really someone who studied Kabbalah a lot in the past or someone who considers himself an expert in Kabbalah. It's more that I started exploring it and I discovered that it was somewhat different than I expected. And I think people who take this course will discover that as well. So Kabbalah is a very general term. It refers to Jewish mysticism. I would use Kabbalah really from the medieval period on. I, I don't really use the term Kabbalah for earlier precedents or roots of what becomes Kabbalistic thought, although some people do. But I like to make that distinction between you know the Bible and the ancient sources and then later interpretations. But even if you're talking about medieval and modern Kabbalah, it's not just one thing, <laughs> you know, it's so many different types of things. Many people have this instinctive reaction to the name Kabbalah, and they think it's something like magical formulas or inscriptions and maybe incantations, and maybe they know a little bit about numerology and things like that. But it's really so much more than that. And um, this is actually... Uh, a contribution of the well-known scholar Gershom Sholem, 
who was born in Germany and moved to Israel before the Holocaust. And what he showed is that Kabbalah or Kabbalistic literature generally can be viewed from a very, very different perspective. It's not just some sort of cultic, mysterious sideshow within religion. It's not just an esoteric cult or doctrine or dogma, which is how it was often viewed. Rather, what Sholem showed is that it can be viewed as central to the development of all of European thought and especially Jewish thought. That within Kabbalistic literature, you have philosophy, you have something approaching mathematics or science of various kinds, you have poetry, you have art, you have meditation, uh, you have reflection on the fundamental mysteries of our existence. And so it's not just this sort of narrow, talismanic notion that most people might associate with Kabbalah. And that's really not what we look at um, in the course. We look at more some of the broader ideas and reflections that have come out of this body of work. If it means reception and if it is general. So that already is very interesting because I thought it was a definitive term for a very specific type of thought. Um, so to think it's a lot more general, what does the literature need to contain to belong to Kabbalah? Well, I should qualify here because, of course, it is used in a more specific sense as well. But scholars and others constantly argue over the very question you mentioned, you know, what should fit into Kabbalah or what doesn't, or is there a way to draw the boundary? It's very, very difficult because there are different categories. And so um, sometimes you'll read about different categories of Kabbalah, whether philosophical Kabbalah or, you know, practical Kabbalah, you know, so they try to create different cubbyholes. That doesn't always work extremely well either. When you asked me about the meaning of the word Kabbalah, I just gave the basic Hebrew definition. But yes, of course, um, there is a more specific meaning as well, which is to say Jewish mystical thought, but then you have to decide what's Jewish mystical thought and what's not. And like I said, this is a big debate and impossible to resolve. So we talk about that in the course as well, you know, what's in and what's out. But to go back to your earlier question, I think what's interesting about this is that if you do define it more generally, let's say Jewish mystical thought, then really we are going back to the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. We are going back to Ezekiel and Ecclesiastes, and we are talking about Second Temple literature. That could be the visions, the, you know, apocryphal literature of the Second Temple period, and then elaboration slightly after that. There's a whole set of Jewish mystical literature that emerges from, let's say, the second to the seventh centuries. That's very important. But we're also, interestingly enough, and this is something I try to argue a bit in the course, we're also talking about the Gospel of John and the letters of Paul, because those are very, very mystical in that ancient Jewish sense. And they have a lot in common with other Jewish mysticism, both of that ancient period and of later periods. Whoa, wait a minute. Did you hear that? If we use a general description of Kabbalah as Jewish mystical thought, that includes Ezekiel and Ecclesiastes. Okay, well, that part may not be a surprise. Those are both a little mysterious. But the Gospel of John and Paul's letters, that's a bit strange to hear, and I promise not to let it go. We'll come back to it. First, since we're using the description Jewish mystical thought, well, what is mysticism? This seems important to define, especially since we're going to say these Second Temple writings and New Testament writings are in this category. 
Well, because you're asking me all of these unanswerable questions that we get into in the course, I'm going to say that people have to take the course to, to get a bit more of an answer on that. But we do look at that right at the beginning. What is mysticism and what's the different approach? But rather than a definition, which I think is very difficult or maybe impossible and, and not always very helpful, I'd like to give a few impressions. So why is there something called mysticism? And why is this literature that has become known as Kabbalistic literature so interesting for someone who reads the Bible? As I was thinking about it earlier, two basic areas came to mind in terms of how we perceive the universe and our existence, and indeed the divine and what's beyond our universe. And the first one is that there's a sense of ineffability that you cannot express the fullness of whatever is. You know, we could call it reality, although reality might seem confined to our universe. But what is even beyond our reality? Um, how can we express it? How can we even express our own reality? There's There are a lot of parallels in some ways, believe it or not, between Kabbalah or mystical thought and modern physics. You know, modern physics expresses the realities of the universe in terms of numbers and formulas, mathematical formulas. Does this work? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. It's a way of trying to speak about the reality, a way that most people don't understand, incidentally, so it's a bit esoteric. But it also isn't quite right. You can't quite get there. It's what G.K. Chesterton called the silent swerving from accuracy by an inch or something like that. You know, he meant that you can never get it quite right. You can study and study and study, try to figure things out, but there's something about our world, even if we're just talking about our universe, not what's beyond our universe, where you can't get it quite right. And it's the same with the physicists. They can never get it quite right. You can't get the formula quite right. The different parts of what we understand or think we understand don't work. They don't work together. They don't fit together. And um, yes, some scientists think, oh, we will get there. Maybe, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But um, at the moment, there isn't that expression that is 100% satisfying. Uh, there's always something a little bit off. There's always something you can't quite express. And if we go beyond physical reality to, you know, emotional reality, daily reality of human life, uh, spiritual realities and things like that, it's even more so. So the, the first area that I think of is that there's this inability to express fully. And that leads us to yearn for something more, for some other form of expression. And the second uh, category, if you will, is um, the category of loss. Living in this world, we feel a sense of loss, that um, the world is somehow broken, that things aren't right. And even those of us who can say we have uh, been blessed with good lives, you know, we enjoy wonderful friends and neighbors and families and jobs and whatever else, even though, even those of us who feel we have or even if we don't feel it, we do have really privileged existences. There's always a sense of loss. Things aren't right. There's always that brother, that sister who died of cancer, or you know, the there's always the injustice of someone um, put in jail, or you know, even worse for crimes they didn't commit. And there's there's always corruption all around us. There's always things that just aren't right. So there's this sense of loss for every human, I think, in this universe. So that's a pretty extraordinary and universal thing to note. It's important. And Kabbalah tries to address that, like, like much of religious meditation. But, but it does so in a way 
that is saying, well, we can't give a precise formulaic answer to this question. And that's what everyone knows already. You give a pat answer to someone who's experiencing suffering or grief, it doesn't really help. You know, there, there is no pat answer. There's no solution. So you need some other form of expression. And mysticism is a form of expression like poetry or metaphor that is trying to go beyond just the literal and the tangible to something more than that. And it can't fully be expressed, but it can be hinted at. I am going to admit to you that in this part of the interview, I was struggling with a clash between my preconceived ideas about what Kabbalistic literature is and what Dr. Gruber is talking about here with the inability to fully and accurately express what is real, along with a sense of loss that we all feel. But I am intrigued. In fact, I am all in. If only I can follow his train of thought through these undefinable subjects. Up an example I'm familiar with, the biblical creation narratives. Dr. Nicholas Shazer and I have talked about them here on the podcast, and he has a really delightful course about reading those narratives in context. What happens if we look at the creation narratives with a mystical or a Kabbalistic mindset? How would we think differently about them? Yeah, like modern physics and cosmology, um, Kabbalah is all about creation. It's, you know, modern physicists try to trace the physical laws that we observe back to back in time and try to arrive at the origin of the universe, things like that. Kabbalah is very, very similar, but in a more universal perspective, not just looking at physical laws. And by the way, the physical laws are things we cannot um, see or smell or touch directly. They're inferences. We can see effects of gravity. But gravity has to be posited and it has to be conceptualized in some way. So gravity is also a kind of mystical conception, if you'll allow me to offend physicists that much. But yeah, so how, do, how does mystical literature look at it? Well, it's obsessed with creation. Everything is about creation. And, you know, why is there a creation? How is there a creation? What's the nature of the being that created us? How do we experience it? And so there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, I'm not sure we even get beyond those questions in this first course. I think it's pretty much all about creation. If I were to pick one of the conceptions, uh, there's the idea of Tsim which is most associated with Isaac Luria of the 16th century. He was reflecting on and unifying and developing a lot of Jewish mystical ideas from previous centuries and millennia, in fact. Maybe became the most famous one who, uh, at least in the modern period, um, developed a system of thought that we call Kabbalah. And this idea of tzimtzum, or contraction, is based on a question, essentially. It's saying, well, if God is let's say, all-powerful. I mean, we have, to, we have to say something, we have to think something about God. If we, we, we have to start somewhere. So let's, let's say that God is all-powerful or all-knowing or even all-in-existence. There, there's some sort of divine being that existed before this universe. So Kabbalah will call this being the Ein Sof, prior to Luria, but the Ein Sof, it means the infinite, the without end. So there's some being that's unlike us in being infinite. And so Luria asks, well, if this being is infinite, in sof, without end, how can there be any space, 
so to speak, or time for us to exist, for our universe to exist, and why would it? And so the solution that he comes up with, and we discuss this in the course, is this idea of contraction that um, God actually, or the divine being, the Ein Sof, because God is a little bit different for the Kabbalists, but the Ein Sof actually sacrificed himself. He sacrificed a portion of himself. He withdrew. He he restricted himself. The one who cannot be restricted restricted himself so that there could be room for something else to exist. Uh, in this act of sacrifice, he then gave a ray of his being, of his light, into that space he created, that time space, if you will, or space-time, to use the modern terminology. And that's how we come to exist. That's how the world is able to exist. So there are a lot of really interesting questions posed about creation. And of course, as I was alluding to before, another question will be, well, how did things get broken? And the idea of brokenness and restoration is a really central concept to Lurianic Kabbalah. The, in trying to ask those questions about what is the character of the divine and the infinite, then us also keeping with the creation theme makes me think of Genesis in chapter one, where it's God creating humans and making them in his image. What is the connection between image in humanity and this infinite divinity? Yeah, it's a really good question, of course, um, uh, for anyone who thinks about such things. And um, there are as many answers as there are people who think about this. But one of the approaches in Kabbalistic literature is to sort of talk about stages of, well, it's called emanation. So I'm trying to think of a different word that might express it, but like how the divine can be translated into our world. Because if we bear the stamp of the divine, we're still different from the divine in some way. So how can that insof, that infinite, be translated into our world and even into us? Um, how can we get a spark of the divine? So the Kabbalistic solution very often, not the only one, but very often is to talk about stages or progressions of the kind of revelation or emanation of the divine into our world and um, thereby to explain or to bridge the gap between the Ein Sof and puny little us. Now, these things, I think, can be looked at in various ways. Some devotees of Kabbalah would, would look at them literally and say, like, this is exactly how it happened, that there were these 10 attributes of God that were revealed and, and things like that. Others might look at it as more of a metaphor or a reflection on things, but this too goes back to the idea of brokenness and restoration. And part of the idea here, again, going to Luria, is that the infinite just can't be contained by the finite. And so even without sin, for example, and the, the fall as it's known um, in Genesis with Adam and Eve and so forth, even before that, just the idea of creating a universe that is supposed to somehow contain sparks of the divine leads to breaking because the finite can't really contain the infinite fire that is the divine. So we have both from the beginning. We have this impression of the divine within us, within our world, and we also have a kind of brokenness because we can never 
fully bridge that gap until in the mystical conception, things are restored. I guess in a biblical framework or second temple framework, you would say at the end of the age. At the conclusion, things will be put back together. But at the moment, we're trying to pick up the pieces. I want to go back to something Dr. Gruber mentioned previously. If we use a general description of Kabbalah that is something closer to Jewish mystical thought, then we can fit the Gospel of John and Paul's epistles under that umbrella. You're dying to know how, right? I mean, I don't know if many of us would naturally say, when I read the Gospel of John, I am reading mysticism. So what is it that John is writing about that fits Kabbalistic literature? Yeah, it's a good question. And what's going on in the first chapter of John there is so fascinating, and it's a combination of a lot of different things. The first thing we have to say, maybe, for people who have read this chapter, you know, which in a traditional translation starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so forth, is that you may not have thought about the general context of these words at the time. So, one of the ways in which it's really important to understand the context is to know that other Jewish Greek writers of the period, like Philo of Alexandria, said very, very similar things. So in other words, this isn't something that John invented or came up with. He was speaking to a, a known concept, the logos, the this mystical word. It is a kind of mystical idea. It's also philosophical. It, it comes partly from the Stoics. It, it, goes in some way through Philo. There are different ideas of the logos in Greek philosophy prior to the first century. But there's this idea from Greek philosophy that then is also brought into Jewish thought, Jewish-Greek thought, that the logos or the principle is somehow involved in the creation of the universe, the word or the rational principle. You could also translate it as the rational principle, something like that for the Greeks. So Philo compares the logos. Now, let me make sure I get this right. I believe it's the architect. He has this model where God is the king who wants to build a city. And I think it's the logos is the architect who then designs the city and implements it, uh, brings it into practice. So this is already present in Jewish and Greek thought of the time. And then John comes into this setting and he writes about the logos being with God through him, all things were made. So he's obviously referring to the same idea. That So the Logos as the creator of the, as, as the one through whom the universe was created, coming from God. So it's a known idea of this sort of entity, if you will, because it's personified. Whether you think it's a person or not is a slightly different question, but the Logos personified certainly exists already as the agent, as a kind of, divine agent, which isn't exactly the same as the Ein Sof, the creator himself or itself. And so um, when John says those things, in the beginning was the Logos, and this can be translated in many different ways, but he's referring to these, he's alluding to these ideas which are philosophical and mystical in the sense that they're not, not things that you can touch or prove exactly, they're more meditations and some would say analogies, metaphors, others wouldn't want to say metaphors, but they're, they're reflections on how this creation could come about in the same way that Luria is reflecting on like, well, how could the, the Ein Sof bring about a world that is not infinite? As you're talking about the, the idea of the Logos already being 
common and talked about in Greek philosophy and then also Jewish philosophy. And part of me is thinking if John is using, if the, if the, if John, the gospel writer is John, the beloved disciple who is a common fisherman from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, who then travels and ends up in Ephesus. Like, that is really sophisticated thought and education. And I guess my brain, you know, when we think of him just writing this theological text, it seems like really important. When we see him engaging with philosophy and culture, it seems highly sophisticated. And it makes me wonder how he got there. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, we don't know who wrote this text. We have no idea if it was a fisherman or somewhere, someone else. You know, there are certain later traditions about that. So I will be agnostic about the issue of authorship and, and how the person became exposed to the ideas. I don't really know what to say about that. I can't really answer it. But I think it's clear that this person was exposed to those ideas. And just one other thing about the mystical aspect, you know, all through Kabbalah, the idea is light and darkness that keeps coming forward. You know, the light, the light, the light. It's a ray of light that comes from God. Um, this is the main metaphor. And you find that in John 1 as well. You know, this light in the darkness, it's the same type of metaphorical language. It's a, it's a common world, a common universe of meaning, if you will, um, that whoever wrote this text is swimming in, so to speak. They're swimming in the same sea. Yeah, I don't know who wrote it, but I do think it's important to recognize that these first century writers were familiar with the same type of thinking and they were developing it in their own ways. And that then this type of thinking continued through Jewish history into medieval Kabbalah and modern reflections. Are you perplexed or are you being slowly drawn into the idea of Jewish mystical thought and the Bible? If you love conversations like this, join us at IBC, where you have access to many amazing courses that dig into the details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. And of course, then you can jump right into Dr. Gruber's class called Kabbalah and the Bible. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>